Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Cast Iron Fitter podcast. Hello. It's episode 32. 32. You're Andrew Allen. I am Andrew Allen. <laughs> are you You're, sure? You are Michelle Donkin. I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, well, we'll chat a little bit about who we've got in this episode of the podcast. Yeah, we spoke to um, Rich Foister and Chelsea Newton-Mountney from Pop Heart Productions. And they've got a show coming up called Shop Play at yeah. the Duke Box Theatre. That's on the 22nd and the 23rd of November. Yeah, and um, it was quite an engaging sort of conversation. We, we sort of spoke about stuff that wasn't even theatre because of the themes of the play. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea's such an interesting director and she likes to look at kind of normal things everyday life and looking at the normal stuff that's uh can be a bit of a tough challenge really Mm. uh to make that sort of um engaging theater uh although actually um we should um, say a a little bit about uh, how exciting chelsea is as a director yeah she's been selected for the young vic directors program quite a um a select group of people yeah and uh, you'd think that for ourselves at Cast Iron, we, we'd be winding down now. We've not got a, like, we haven't got a Christmas pantomime or anything to prep for. No. So we, we should really be winding down. Are yeah. we winding down? We're not, yeah. no. I think absolutely nobody would be surprised to hear that we've got a number of things we've got a number on of the things. horizon. Um, so first up on the 21st of November, so the same week as Shop Play, yep. we've got the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast Live. Um, that's a £5 ticket. Um, it's a, the Sweet Jukebox. Uh, our guests this month, super excited. Yeah. We've got Aidan Goatley. Yes, local stand-up. Yeah, and Paul McCauley. Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be fun. It's going to be lovely. Yeah. Um, Aidan himself, he, he delivers his own podcast. Oh, yes, um, 10 films with. Yes, so that we might take a detour on our conversational gambits mm. on that Tuesday. Yeah, he's, he's uh, got another podcast as well, hasn't he? Let's Kill Hitler, Yeah, which is named after an do- episode of Doctor Who, so that's the Doctor Who reference uh, fixed in for today. Yeah, um, we've got another sneaky Doctor Who reference later in this episode as well. We have. Spot it if you can. Um. <laughs> I, think we, I, think, I think we acknowledge it, don't we? we, we, we... I, I think I may have been shouting it from the rooftops. The Anyway, yeah, that's yeah. one for you to... Find if you can. Yeah. A little Easter egg Doctor Who reference. Not at all. Yeah. Um, what else have we got going on? Well, in that same week again. Yeah. It's a quite busy week for us. Yeah. On the 24th and 25th, we've got Cast Iron 10. Yes. Our short play night. That's our 10th, uh, hence Cast Iron yep. 10. Our 10th edition of short play night. Yes, it's an evening of, uh, as you say, short plays, uh, written uh, largely by local uh, writers, directed by local directors, uh, performed by, well, you get the idea. Yeah. And um, keep in touch, uh, have a look for us on Facebook and Twitter, because on uh, that week, we'll be doing the shout out for rapid response uh, plays, which will be like um, Mm. very short plays, like three or four minutes long. Uh, That should be for two-handers. And they ideally will be written as a response to whatever's in the news that week. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you sort of uh, email them to us that day, it's you know it's possible that they may well be performed by uh, our actors on that night. Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna say I'm gonna just say it's about 2017. 
there, there is news. There's stuff going on. Yeah. As always, please subscribe to us and rate us, review us on whatever medium, platform you, you get your podcast. We're available on SoundCloud. We're also available on iTunes. So, yeah, rate, review subscribe all of which really helps us move up the charts it does it helps other people find us it helps spread the cast iron word the sit pod word yeah talking about the sit pod there's yeah. also something else that uh, people can get in on yeah if you want to be a real true fan supporter just feel like you want to invest in in our hard work because it takes an awful lot to put these podcasts together it does we're all about um celebrating lots of grassroots work in brighton and promoting local talent yeah all all the all of those good things it takes probably about 10 hours per episode um to put everything together to interview to edit to anyway lots of work and we are delighted to do so however if you are able to show your love in a financial way, always an awkward conversation, yeah. then you can go to Patreon. So we have a Patreon page um, that's at patreon.com forward slash sitpod, which is C-I-T-P-O-D. You can become a patron. You can uh, donate as little as $1 a month. It is in American dollars. That's just the way it is. Or you could donate five dollars a month in order to get a shout out on the end credits of the cast iron theater podcast itself there are loads and loads of rewards on offer there as well if you want to go higher that would be absolutely fabulous wouldn't that be an exciting thing it would be to be able to invest in the podcast and really take it to the next level would be amazing absolutely if you um if you're able to give us five dollars the equivalent of five dollars then yes certainly i i can sort of shout out your name uh, in the closing credits or if you want it pronounced correctly Michelle can do that for you that is true if you've got any questions you'd like to ask us or just want to frankly send us a lovely email yeah um, or, or not it's fine I mean, I, mean, I mean don't send us abuse we, we, we can well, go on tw- Twitter for that yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, that's fine yeah. then uh, <laughs> go to cast underscore iron at outlook.com I've given up on our long email address that you mocked me for <laughs> I don't remember mocking you. You, you, you did. I did a very long email address, and I was really proud of it. And um, you said that's a little bit long. Anyway, we're now using our cast iron email address. Yeah. So do send us uh, your thoughts, your questions. Send us some suggestions of people you might like us to chat to. That's also the email address you can use to send us uh, your scripts, whether it be the rapid response um, scripts or when we're doing a call-out throughout the entire year for scripts that you might want to be used in the production nights of Cast Iron. Yeah, and stay tuned at the end of this episode for all our various other contact details. I will, however, say that we we have two Twitter handles. We do. The main Cast Iron one, which is... At cast underscore iron acts. Yeah, and we've also got the Ooh. Cast Iron Theatre podcast. The one handle. for the podcast itself, yes. Yeah, which is at C-I-T underscore P-O-D. So that's at sit underscore pod. Sit pod. Sit pod. I like it. Yeah. I like sit pod. Yeah. So, as always with Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, this is um, adults 
talking to other adults about um, theatre, art. Um, we kind of have to ask our listeners to use a little bit of discretion when they're listening to the podcast. Only because sometimes there'll be, you know, the occasional, you know, naughty word that might slip out. Yeah. Uh, which we haven't censored or bleeped. No. So you just, just a heads up that if you've got any sort of... Um, Young ears in the room, um, they you might not want them to hear those. Words. Yeah, you might want to listen to it later. Yeah. So I think that's it. It is. Shall we listen? Yeah, we should. Have fun. So here we are. We're with our guests today. Our Pop Heart Productions. Hello. 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 Uh, we, we last time we chatted to you was just before the Brighton Fringe. Uh, how'd that go for you? That went super well. Yeah. Yeah, we're really good. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden we're being very coy. Yeah, it went really well. Yeah. Um, six nights at the Warren and it, it pretty much sold out every night. I think we're only like two tickets short. So Yeah, uh, we sold out. I call that a sellout. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, in what way, in terms of experience or ticket sales or whatever, in what way did 2017 compare to 2016 or 2015? I think this year was a big year for us in terms of it was the first year that we had full audiences of strangers. Yeah, that's really important. And that was kind of a bit like, oh shit, like people who we don't know are here (laughs) and other people who put on plays are here and it wasn't just like I mean obviously lots of our friends make work but um you know, there was nights and we didn't know anyone in the crowd and that's that so that was kind of felt like a step forward for me at least. Yeah, Yeah, and I think the venue that we, we, we had it on at, I think it was quite a sort of communal venue so there were people that we literally just met on that evening just sitting down having a drink and you'd have a conversation with them and then you'd see them in the show like 10 minutes later and I think that's always quite a nerve-wracking but also quite an exciting thing that you've been able to convince somebody who has no reason (laughs) to come and see your show no attachment to the show um, just based on the product that that's something they really want to go and see and spend their hard cash on it. And that is the golden ticket at, at a certain level of uh, theatre making, isn't it, where perhaps not more than 3,000 people have heard of you, um, where the name alone is enough to get people through the door, yeah. when you are at a certain point, an early point in your career, relying on friends and neighbours to come along. So that point where you get strangers coming along and see the show that's really yeah. valuable and really exciting mm. Mm. definitely and when, yeah, the hope is obviously that, that they'll see it they'll tell their friends and that, that's what everyone hopes mm. so, yeah. you know that they'll see it they'll tell their friends they'll, see, they'll say I saw this really good show and, and obviously your fan base will grow from there yeah, yeah. So, obviously since uh, May uh, the summer has happened and uh, we're now getting into the dark wintry rainy days of winter so obviously you, you've had some time off and you've relaxed in the last few months um, <laughs> we, had a, we had a bit of time off actually, yeah. we did. Um, we went to Secret Garden Party Festival, we went to Germany to visit a friend, um, and we did, we saw friends and things, and that oh, was yeah. nice. And then we What's got, that like? <laughs> yeah, it was really friends. nice. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah. Okay. Um, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I think there's like, obviously there's two things, I mean obviously you, on the one hand you want to take time off to recharge the batteries, and then obviously you just need to find different sources of inspiration. and. And I think that's what yeah. we, we sort of took the time to do, really, is to try and recharge the batteries and, and get the brain working on, on new ideas and get new inspiration from different places. Yeah, I mean, equally, I went to a fair few auditions and didn't get the parts, so it's <laughs> 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 about. You know, we work on other things too, um, like, you know, like trying to get work for other people, done bits and bobs of modelling. Yeah. Um, 
but in terms of making our own work I think for all creatives um, we always forget how important the downtime is and actually it is important to your work um, but when you're in it it's really frustrating <laughs> um, but it is important I think yeah I think it's definitely important not to try and uh, sometimes you can get into a thing where you are correct uh, get into a, a sort of scenario where you're, you're desperately trying to just create and almost create just for the sake of creating rather than creating something that is good and that you're really proud of and it's just this you know, we want to we want to create good products. What inspires and educates you as because you know obviously you're creating your own work, uh, but you'll get to see other people's work, whether it be through the medium of theatre or film or whatever. What has been inspiring or that's interesting, educating you recently? I think what I've always been really fascinated with, and I think you know a lot of this trended from my fuckable, but is is, is generally everyday scenarios everyday situations so I've kind of had running through my head and what I'm working on for for next fringe because obviously everyone has to start working on their, their next project um, is, is, is kind of how odd it can be working in an office and how yeah. odd it can be when you come from a world from the theatre world or you come from, come from a world of being a writer and then at the same time you're then put in a scenario which is really kind of discombobulating at times like working in an office where you know you have a language that seems to be all of its own where you have meetings that you can have all these managers sitting around a table and after an hour really feel like you don't understand what anyone is saying they're yeah. just using buzzwords constantly and I think that kind of thing is always really interests me is, is taking the, the sort of everyday and the mundane and, 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 and trying to sort of give that a, a platform. And it, and it can go both ways, can't it? I remember Steve Coogan used to tell a story about, you know, he was working in a, a factory or some, some sort of trade sort of place and he'd be sort of reading the newspaper uh, at the tea break and everyone else would have their copy of The Sun in their jeans pocket and he'd be reading The Guardian maybe laughing at a, an article and work could go what are you laughing at oh it's no it's nothing no what, what, what's so funny oh no it's a, it's a comment on the uh, current trade negotiations in Berlin is that funny then um, I, I thought it was but <laughs> <laughs> so there is that sort of um, clash of if you could generally speaking if you're very lucky you don't work in the place that you would want to spend 70% of your life in um, I, I wouldn't want you to sort of like be writing your resignation letter on a podcast but <laughs> yeah. that might be for many people generally true yeah and I, I think work like um, like family sometimes the opinions that of the people that you work with and the opinions of your family you kind of have no choice in what surrounds you I mean yeah. you have no choice of what place you work but the people that work there are part of the furniture and you're the sort of the, the new guy coming in so yeah. therefore you know, you have no control. You can't go in and be like, "Right, I'm, I'm really sorry. This sexist talk must stop. This is yeah. disgusting." You have to, you have to try and <laughs> um, sort of integrate yourself into that world. And that's well, okay, uh, I have to, sort of, I have to <laughs> leap onto that, particularly in this week of, of current news stories. Yes, because uh, the phrasing you used is, "You one can't really leap in and say stop this sexist talk." Is there now, today, this year, more responsibility on? one to go 
No, then actually you do have to leap in and say, stop this sexist talk. Because presumably, if one did, any intelligent company would know what side they're both about and back you rather than the sexist talker. Yeah, I think, it, I think what I was trying to say, and I, I perhaps didn't articulate myself 100% correctly, um, but what I was, was really getting at is it's about picking the moments to yeah. do that and, and, and picking the battles to have that with uh, picking the time to have those battles um, I think you know obviously I you know do hold people accountable for things they say and the things they do and obviously if they're doing something which is really upsetting or offending somebody then I know. think you're, the point I felt like the, the gist of what you're Sorry, trying to say and no you're not bubbling <laughs> and and maybe sexist talk was the wrong example to use because you have stood up for things like that yeah but is that in a place like that, in that kind of the, the mentality that you're in, that you are not encouraged to speak up about anything, or you are not encouraged to kind of almost have free thought and your own opinions because it's about the bigger machine and being part of that machine rather than being an original thinker. Is that more? What Which you mean? I, I think, yeah. I mean, basically, that that is entirely what what I was kind of trying to get at. Which is that I think in a in a corporate environment, um, for example. Um, at, at a place that I have worked, um, they got rid of the union, um, yeah. replaced it with their own union, um, which was sort of funded by, their, by yeah. their own company. And then that union was doing the job too effectively, so they wouldn't let their own union in the building. So you're constantly fighting <clears throat> these situations where people are making illogical decisions, like. I don't know, you haven't got enough staff, you need more staff. And they'll go, no, we need to get rid of staff because we need to make more money. But the idea of having more staff would mean that your company would run more efficiently, you would get reviewed better by your customers, they would appreciate your service a lot more, and actually that would generate more business by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. well, we're probably about three years less away from a, 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 a metro supermarket, that sort of size supermarket, having no till staff at all, just a two, till supervisor. I mean, that's generally on certain shifts, that's the way it is anyway. Yeah, um, and so you're going to have almost personnel-less stores. Yeah, um, and offices as well. And I, I think it's really interesting what you were saying, Rich, about the link between your corporate life or your job, your work life, and larger family as well, um, and the opinions of fami family not quite matching who you are at home, and that the link between that and work, that's a really interesting link as a writer that I've immediately gone, oh, that's a nice metaphor. Yeah. yeah and I think that's, is that what you're, uh, without giving too much away about your next, your next project, is that what you're kind of so, interested in at the moment then? So yeah, I think that's, yes, um, the next project I'm writing for next year is, is around uh, an office work environment, um, it's going to be called Blue Sky Thinking, um, that's nice. what I'm writing at the moment and it is all about sort of uh, the, the crazy work environment that we know the idea that everyone's sat at a computer staring at spreadsheets surrounded by file, filing cabinets and photocopiers and mm -hmm. um, basically the idea of trading a life of creativity for a world of sort of the mundane really fluorescent strip lights walkables cubicles all of those kind of really yeah. cliched horrible things that you find in offices but things that are kind of um, inescapable um, and, and what I'm really trying to explore in, in this next piece is um, the story of, sort of one woman who I guess 
when you're a creative, you're sometimes looked at by the mainstream, the people mm. that are doing sort of Monday to Friday, nine to five office jobs. They kind of look at you and you go, go, oh, you're you're, you're doing a, you're, you're producing a play, uh, and they seem completely baffled yeah. at why anyone would do that, and yeah. they just. Not all of them. I mean, I work with a lot of people who work who are in bands or journalists who, who do other jobs as well. But I think there is a, a certain a core, because otherwise businesses wouldn't run. There's a mm. core of people who subside on their sort of the families outside of work, the holidays that they take two or three, two or three weeks a year, mm-hmm. um, and then just going into work every day and just earning a regular wage and supporting their, their families. And, and that idea of creativity is something which is they just think it's bizarre that anyone would, 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 would want anything other than what they have and, yeah, yeah. and, and, and uh, you know, good, good on them, but that's Well, diff- different things fulfil different yeah. people, don't they? Yeah. 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 Um, this also links in quite neatly with um, Chelsea, your next project, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. That's right. Uh, which does, in theory, explore some of the same things. Definitely. Um, I think our work has always been interested in looking um, at the banal and... Um, shining a light on how absurd real life can be yeah. um, and I'm personally a massive fan of pop art and obviously that's partly what that's about is um, how interesting the banal and the everyday is definitely so tell me about this uh, look, let's start with the name shock play and so that's pr- pretty much what it says on the tin totally yeah, yeah. Um, well, you were like why don't you call it play and shop and I'm like because that's too predictable I really like the idea of shop play because it's such like a bland name Yeah. And but it's exactly what it is it's a play about shop and then it's of course it's messing around with the whole thing of playing shop and all that stuff um, so yeah I like it <laughs> um, it's looking at one girl who um, struggles to really express herself I guess and is stuck um, in this little local kind of shop um, and the eccentric characters that uh, surround her um, and what she puts up with from her co-worker, her boss, customers, um, but also looking at the kind of how that kind of culture, that community local shop culture is really dying um, and how obviously all these little mini supermarkets we have now have really killed that. Yeah. So it's kind of about that as well. That's quite interesting anyway. Does that mean that she's the normal one? <laughs> I don't know if she's the normal one so much as the quiet one. Yeah. I think um, she's a character that maybe hasn't learned to express herself or stand up for herself um, and maybe feels like she doesn't have any other options so just takes it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, I'm assuming it's an hour long. It is, yeah. Yep. Uh, so which means that there's a bit of a challenge for us to chat about it without giving away too much of um, the plot. Uh, but that's a, an interesting point straight away. Is it plot-based? Is it sort of narrative-based? Or is it a bit more loose than that? Um, well, I famously don't really work with narrative. <laughs> um, but there is, um, yeah, there is a narrative to this, I yeah. hope. I think there is. There's a beginning, a middle, and an ending. Um, is it in that order? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, I've, I always say, oh, I don't work with narrative. I work with, <laughs> I work with concepts, which sounds so pretentious. <laughs> um, but... That's just the truth. Yeah. Um, but this, I, I really wanted to work with something that had a narrative. And although, like, we've um, maybe talked about that thing of every day and um, it, every day isn't about big drama. Sure. Um, and, and the play isn't about big drama, but it is about the, the small experiences that we have all the time that matter to us really deeply. 
So just to be clear, you're, you're writing this, you've, you've written this. It's partly written, but it's mostly devised. Uh, so how does that, and does, I guess it's a two-part question, how does that work in terms of how do you devise a play like this, and have you been devising in a different way than you would for a different project? Definitely, and um, because I'm in it, and it's the first time that I've kind of directed myself, although other people have been co-directing it as well, so Rich has obviously been co-directing it and our good friend um, Trevor Scales has also been looking at it a lot and kind of um, been more of a acting coach with it than director I guess um, but it's been really different being in the situation of trying to objectively see myself in scenes as well as looking at the scene from a narrative angle from a creative angle from the director's angle from the actor's angle so that's been a real challenge um, but it's also been really interesting um, on the different things that I'm picking up on um, so that's been really cool and working with um, James Maliki I'm really sorry James for such a second name wrong I don't think I've ever heard it out loud before <laughs> um, but James um, has been really cool to work with because he's um, he's he's really good at pulling something really random out the bag Yeah. Um, and we've never worked together before so that's been really new as well so when uh, Chelsea when you're directing Chelsea um, does Chelsea the actor do what Chelsea the director wants her to do? No, I've got very cross with myself sometimes. <laughs> I've been in situations going, okay, if you're the director, what would you say to your actors right now? And then, and then in my head we're going, well, I don't want you to do that. I'm feeling very moody today and I don't, feel, I don't feel broken up to that today. And, oh, well, I'm not really... In, yeah, and so that's been tricky. That's only happened really badly once. Yeah. Um, most of the time I've managed to push myself and Trevor is very strict Trevor's like not let me get away with anything yeah. how, how is that for somebody who isn't creating the narrative or the words um, and essentially you probably have a shorthand presumably you have a shorthand to what your, your character is thinking and doing and motivation how is it for somebody else to be strict with you when you know what the end result should be well, like I say, Charles is more an acting coach, and so he's really worked with me on um, on our characterisation. So once we formed the character and the bulk of the story, that's when he came in and really was like, okay, there's not enough definition between your characters, or okay, let's focus on that monologue today, and let's um, okay, let's spend an hour talking about the backstory. And he's yeah. he's been really good at generating that kind of stuff um, because. I, I think I found that harder than I expected to do for myself in this case. Yeah. Am I right in thinking I've just picked up on something you said there about distinction between characters? It's a two-hander, yeah? Yeah. And are you playing between you, are you playing more than one character? Yeah, we both multi-role. Um, so we both play customers and staff. Uh, James plays the boss. And then um, I also have like a more abstract scene where um, I'm playing like loads of different customers all at once kind yeah. of thing. Um, yeah, so that's been really cool. And it's maybe we want to be like, I want to do like sketch character comedy. It's maybe we want to do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's been cool. So uh, there's, there's, um, I mean, Amma Fakawa had lots of um, comedy in it, but you were in that particular production not on the stage mm-hmm. for that. So has, you, you're, you've already said yes to this, but I just want to pull that for a bit more. It's giving you a taste of performing more in a comedic sense and giving you a taste for that. Yeah, I mean, um, I haven't really done a lot of comedy only really in when I've been in it kind of improv troops I don't yeah. think I've done a scripted comedy for years um, but yeah I mean I 
I love both comedy and drama and everything in between. So I've, for ages I've wanted to do um, character-based sketch comedy. Yeah. Um, so it was nice just to kind of touch on that a tiny bit in this play, although it's not that seems not so much comedic, I don't think. But um, just to try and bash out and work out loads of different character manners is cool. So when you're devising something, uh, particularly with, with another actor, how much of it gets written down? Do you, will you have a script? Well, for this one, it's funny because mostly, like, well, how we've done it before is it's written down until after it's performed. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there is a hell of a lot of a hell of a lot of notes, and you have pages and pages of notes on your rehearsals, and then you'll have like a summary of your lines per scene. Um, obviously, the ones that have been written are more structured and are written out like a standard script. Um, but the devised ones tend to be a little bit looser although you do um, have pretty much every line written out but obviously stuff gets added in yeah. occasionally do you recall your rehearsals or your um, sessions at all? I wanted to ask that yeah sometimes um, but actually I found that more useful for seeing how you're pref- well for me directing it and being in it I found that more useful uh, less so for material and more for physicality yeah, yeah. Mm. but does that mean if you're not recording every session or a lot of sessions does that mean that there are sometimes particularly clever or amusing lines that then get lost in the ether because you can't remember what the hell you said that time I don't think so and I was I've been thinking about, about this a lot like because when when you're watching the Black Day scene and you go oh last time you did that scene you had that great line what was it let's put that back in yeah Mostly someone in the room will remember, mostly. And then I kind of think, you know what, if everyone's forgotten, it can't have been as good as we thought it was the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Because you remember. Yeah. I really believe that. I I don't know if I do. (laughs) There's something called, well, is that indeed a book called The Well of Lost Plots? And there's the whole idea when you haven't quite nailed an idea down, you've finished it, and it gets lost to the ether uh, and occasionally if you are as a writer if you're procrastinating too much there's an idea that's really fine even if you haven't mm. forgotten it the idea is really fine but if you don't finish it and get it done soon then the idea fades away like tears in the ring it, it, it <laughs> sort of um, it becomes lost so I, I, I appreciate the logic of oh you know, even when you're in conversation and you forget your uh, thread, then mm. you know somebody like I don't know that nonsense grandmother will say, "Well, it can't have been that important, then can yeah. it?" And you know, it really could have been. Um, so I don't know. It yeah. could have been. I mean, I I think equally that sometimes when you write, not that I'm a great <laughs> a great writer, I don't write a lot. Yeah. Um, but that you can stress over something for uh, like a Absolutely. piece of writing for so long and overthink it. Um. Whereas with devising, it's much more um, uh, spontaneous, which I like. And I also like the way that it is more kind of throwaway. And I really like that about it, that you can spend an evening working on something um, and then be like, okay, scrap it. That had one good line. You know, and and I like the the way it's so physical and it literally just exists, you know, in your body and, and in your mouth as a performer. And then it can literally just be lost. And I actually quite like that. Okay, so here's a, a quite a, a big question then in terms of uh, your work with Pop Art last year with um, um, Am I Fuckable? And uh, in, next month, this month really, with um, Shopley. Uh, in terms that they are, for the most part, they're examining ideas. They are arguably less um, concerned, even though you said Shopley has a beginning, middle, and end. Mm. Uh, they are less concerned with narrative, they're more. Um, Concerned with response and uh, moments in time, 
rather than actual full overarching story. Is your work, not necessarily pop art production, but is Chelsea's uh, work, is it ultimately throwaway or is it going, is it, can it ever be designed or is it not maybe something you even think about? Is it something that you, one could, either as yourself as a writer or as an audience member, we could return to it, the same product, in four years' time? Or is it almost deliberately ethereal and you're always going on to the next thing, to the next thing? I think I'm especially drawn to themes or titles or mediums that you can morph and change depending on uh, where you are and where the world is. So Am I Fuckable is the perfect example of that. Um, that it's a very broad title in a way but also a very specific question it's asking and there's a lot that comes under that umbrella and although shot play isn't as um, broad as that um, it's still tackling a theme which is is so in particular with shot play every day that, that it's probably going to be you know having to buy food is an everyday part of a yeah. life and we're always going to have to buy food so I'm drawn to things that you can morph into something else as time goes on does that mean that we might not ever be able to buy a physical script by Chelsea Newton Mountain? Oh, well, it depends if I get my act together and, and uh, uh, watch hours of footage of stuff and type out. You know what? No, you know, I don't think you will because I'll type it up and I won't like it. <laughs> People are going to have to come and see the They're show. They're going to have to come yeah, and see the, the show. Better. And even better, you know, that's the thing that's, I think, especially special with these shows is if you saw Am I Fuckable last year, the show you saw the year before was completely, not completely mm. different, but, but different in a lot of ways. And it's even the same night per night. So with Shot Play, we're only doing two nights. Yeah. And you can, you can guarantee there'll be differences in those two nights. And I, I really like that as an audience member, knowing like there's a danger to that, and I find that really seductive as an audience yeah. member. Even if the kind of narrative is the same, that... You know, you might you're going to get different lines and different touches and nuances. And that comes something out of um, certainly the uh, improv background, but generally as a, as a live performance theatre background. In that, the best and worst thing about live performance is that moment will never happen again. That that evening will yeah. never happen again. That yeah. never repeated. I mean, don't get me wrong; it'd be great to work with the script, <laughs> and it's all safe, and you can blame the writer. <laughs> Speaking as a writer, I, 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 I thank you. <laughs> what sort of um, memories do you have of that concept of, of the local shop? I mean, oh my god! <laughs> well, like, we had the best local shop <laughs> when I grew up. Obviously, probably everyone says that, don't they? Ours was really weird. Um, and it had like loads of leather boots hanging from the oh, ceiling. Yeah. They looked like Victorian ones, and it was huge. Um, it was like I think a shop and then a house like mixed together. And then it had on a Sunday half the shop would be closed, and if you wanted anything from that side of the shop, you'd have to like ask a staff member to go through. I mean, I grew up in a tiny village yeah. in Lincolnshire, so um, it was amazing that it was actually open on Sundays. Um, <laughs> but that actually got turned into a co-op about I think seven years ago. Yeah. So. Yeah. I certainly yeah, remember um, local shops, um, sweet shops, news agents having the penny sweets and stuff. Mm. Um, penny sweets, I realise, aren't really a thing now unless you go to nostalgia shops or you buy Haribo because that's essentially what yeah. those now are. Um, and I said, yeah, I remember news agents having uh, a stack of newspapers uh, or sort of comic books of which, uh, at the age of 11 or 7, I could be found sitting on the floor reading all the comics 
for about two or three hours. We did have a library. I just said, apparently, was always <laughs> in the um, comic book section of a newsagent and um, Penny Sweets. I realised recently that there's a shop very near to us, uh, in, near to us geographically, but also in time, which is now, today, that is very much like a 1970s, 1980s local shop. It sells uh, tins of dog food and sweets and stuff, but it's also got, you know, four hair dryers for sale. So I really love that. Genuinely places. bizarre sort of yeah. mix of shops. And the thing I really miss as well is that that they have a post office as well oh, yeah. Yeah. and that's yeah. so much so important to the whole com- kind of community factor of it the post office and you go to pay your pension and get your cash and mm. you know, post your letters or whatever like I think it's really sad that's been lost I think it's interesting I mean there are a lot of shops all around and lots of um, sort of yeah lots of lots of shops all around which basically seem like they're out of some kind of time warp I mean there's a laundrette in, in Camp Town um, near where we live and it literally looks like something out of oh, the 1960s it's so and good it hasn't been updated it hasn't yeah. been decorated and obviously you know in this in this day and age everyone kind of wants that industrial uh, sort of factory type vibe and, and, and a lot of those old fashioned buildings with the old fashioned interiors which you know are now are, are kind of more in vogue yeah. you know those have died out over many many years so the ones that actually exist you walk past them you're like oh this is this is amazing I mean you know you, you imagine filming something here or imagine yeah. you know there are certainly a few shops in Brighton where you because of the sort of things they sell and the amount of customers that they probably have per week you assume oh you, you, that, that's been bought personally about 40 years ago there's no way anybody's paying any rent on that yeah. because the amount of money actually going through there mm. and what business they might be doing I remember being lost in Ireland a couple of years back literally, <laughs> literally lost in Ireland and in the middle of Southern Ireland where there were green fields in the 360 degrees there was, there was nothing going on and not even which the point there was not even any farmhouses or buildings or anything yeah. going on except for just tucked away in the middle of the field was a wedding cake shop yeah. just, just, just that no, nothing else <laughs> I'm assuming they use most of their business online uh, yeah but um I guess one of the questions we can ask uh, everybody in the room, actually, in terms of because of their experience of working in an office or working in a shop and whatever, um, that old classic question: What's the worst job you ever had? Ooh. Oh, well, okay, well, I uh, yeah, I have had some shoppers. <laughs> I've I've had some yeah. Well, I mm, probably flyering for for dodgy nightclubs really late at night. <laughs> I think that's probably <laughs> the most. I think that is the worst. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that. <laughs> yeah, I think the worst job I ever had was, well, oddly enough, working in an office. I work in an office now, but it was yeah. a different office job. Yeah. The difference was, compared to what I do now, which has a lot of different factors, a lot of different tasks that I perform every day, yeah. this was someone coming in to do data entry. So you know the whole PPI situation mm. that's going on at the moment. Um, people would send in letters saying I've got PPI insurance on my card can you cancel it and so somebody me this muggins over here had to go onto the computer and change a one to a zero which was basically showing that they no longer had insurance on their car okay. card and I did that like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those <coughs> and I, that's all I did all day I would love that and it was so <laughs> boring yeah. and the, the worst the worst part about it was I got um a magazine out about two days in because I was like literally I can do this without yes. even even yeah. concentrating and somebody spotted me and then the next thing I know the phone in front of me rang 
because uh, I was um, and I was like well, that's odd because I've been here like two days and the phone has never rung once I, <laughs> yes. um, I should mention at this point I was working through an agency so when I picked up the phone it was my agency and they were like uh, calling me up to tell me that uh, I had been uh, let go basically because oh. apparently I've been reading a magazine and that's unprofessional wow. so that was the worst job I really ever. hate that when you're working somewhere and they're like you can't read a magazine and I'm like what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I can multitask exactly <laughs> I can change ones to zeros and read I can't think per se of the worst job that I ever had because there's been one or two mm-hmm. uh, but I worked once in an office that was um, annexed to a wheelchair repair service there's a big warehouse uh, doing wheelchairs mainly contracted to the NHS etc and one of my jobs was to ring up people who were awaiting uh, their wheelchair (laughs) and uh, tell them that um, their wheelchair was ready and uh, obviously the NHS is a a bit of a waiting list for some time so on on occasion I would ring up to um, tell um, the household that um, their wheelchair was ready and I'd get a very sweet little old lady uh, telling me oh, that, that's lovely but he did die this morning um, mm. and oh. so that was awkward well, I once had um, somebody uh, ring up uh, to tell me that the the, the directional uh, little button on his wheelchair was malfunctioning and he was currently spinning in a very tight circle in his kitchen oh. and could somebody <laughs> come over and help um, and then I was uh, having to be on the phone to somebody uh who was a supplier of false limbs and they put me in hold they presumably didn't know what their hold music was because it was Kenny Loggins Footloose <laughs> which is not good or maybe they did maybe, maybe they, they did, did. Maybe. <laughs> they did. Okay. mine was the first temp job I ever had at the age of 16 after I'd done a year as a I trained for a year at college after leaving school as um, as a legal Secretary, yeah. so I got my legal secretarial qualification. So I must have been 17, and I went out to work for this office. Um, and I spent it was in London, and I, I, was, I was registered with some posh agency in London. I was like, Yes, I shall go to London every day, and I'll be one of those office yeah. people that wear shoes and suits and you know, yeah, yeah. office types. And the first job that I got was a day on reception and I was all very smart and I loads of money spent out on suits and things and I went in and it was just this reception table with a security guard who was awesome actually and then just a bank of lifts beside me and my job for the day was to let people come in and then they'd sign and then they'd go to the lift and I'd press the button for the lift to open and that was it. And it sounds, that sounds fine. Yeah. And it was fine, but it was a really long day in Victoria, lots yeah. of travel for very little money. Yeah. And I didn't really know what the office was, so I'd no. have people coming in going, is this a thingy building? And I'd be like, I, uh, and a security guard would go, yeah, 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 it is, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd be like, and they'd sign in. And I didn't even know who they were. If they signed in, then I'd let them in. And I was like, is there no sort of security I'd need to check? No, no, just press the button. That must have given you a great sort of sense of your own purpose in life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was a day of, a day of that. I had many days Ooh. like oh, that. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was just one day. And then I left and went, wow, that was that was worth going to New Look yeah. <laughs> and shelling out all that money on a really expensive New Look. 
it, so it's not that expensive there but you know what I mean yeah yeah here's what might be a more <laughs> difficult question I'm not sure that I've got the answer to this what's the best job you've ever had yeah the best job I've ever had um, I was working through an agency again in fact not long after the first job I just <laughs> talked about and I was <laughs> working in building maintenance um, so basically um, we, we did stuff like if they needed like coat hooks put up or they needed anything done like DIY in the building like we would, would do that I wasn't even like the main person so I wasn't allowed to like do anything with the drill or anything yeah. <laughs> so literally I was getting paid like seems like a lot of the time like, I think it was like seven or eight pounds an hour and it was in a building that was they were just closing down so mm. all the time I was there more and more people were leaving the building so there was very few people there and we had one real job that we had to do every day which was just go around every single part of the office and drop off a box of copier paper so <laughs> there was copier paper there so we'd do that in the morning and then we'd go down into the kitchen sometimes the kitchen needed like, like the drains cleaned out or something we'd yeah. do that and then they'd give us loads of free like hash browns and we'd have like hash brown eating contests <laughs> And then we'd go up. Why did this business go under? Yeah. <laughs> well, they were closing down the building. They've now moved to a much bigger offices. Okay. Um, so, so that's why it was. That's why it was like there was nothing happening there. And um, we then go up into the. We had like an office, and we just hide in the office most of the day. And occasionally, the manager would come up and go. What you what are you doing? And be like, oh, we're just about to go and do this. And then we'd like walk off and pretend we were doing something else, even though we weren't. And we do stuff like we created uh, elastic band darts. So we found this big board <laughs> of wood and we hammered nails into this board of wood. And then we'd sit at the opposite end of the, the, the office and flick elastic bands and try and hang them on the hooks. Oh, that's good. And we'd play that all day or we'd like chuck forks into the polystyrene ceiling that we had. <laughs> and we had like a, an umbrella stuck in the ceiling. I found out after I left that job, because I left that job to go and join the Navy. That <laughs> And they were lucky to have you. I know, exactly, right? His and, aim is really good. <laughs> um, I found out after I'd left that um, it was it just they carried on like just closing it down, closing down more offices. They managed to get hold of a computer, like one of the old computers in the office. Yeah. And they took it up to the, the small office and then they managed to get loads of like old games and just <gasps> installed them on the computer. So they were just playing like They're Grand Theft Auto. Bunch. I know, yeah. I thought that's yeah. Learn from the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. So it was a good job, yeah. Chelsea, what was the best job you ever had, do you know? Um, well, you know, there's been a plethora of some really great ones. Um, <laughs> hair modelling, yeah. when I was 17, was probably one of the best. Because, I mean, you really didn't have to do much. You just sat there and people did your hair. And then occasionally yeah. you'd have to go on stage and they'd cut it on stage and people would watch or... Yeah, but that was probably <laughs> like... You just have to be made up and look all right. Yeah. So I managed it. <laughs> well done. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got paid well for sitting there. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Shadi, you have a job that you would like to have? Um, apart from this job that we're doing now, um, I would say that, do you know what? Even though I, I teach primary school yeah. occasionally, so I really love that, um, and I do. Yes. That sounded incredibly sarcastic. I really love that. It only sounds more sarcastic the more you protest. <laughs> <laughs> I do the, love it, honest. <laughs> the paperwork is um, not lovable, no. but the children are incredibly awesome, so yeah. I do love that. Um, but the best job, apart from theatre, would be when I 
went to, I used to work for the BBC and I used oh, yeah. to work for the writer's room occasionally and I'd go in and read scripts from the writer's room and yeah. then we'd have meetings and say, well, I've been reading this script and I, I've been reading this piece of work and it's amazing and this mm. and that. And it was just, I was like, oh my God, I'm so part of something. And going, I used to be a runner. So I used to uh, uh, just do tea and coffees for people and um, really you know, low-level stuff, but I used to get guests, VIP guests from Stage Door at Television Centre and yeah. walk them to the to the to their meetings, which was um, incredibly nerve-wracking at the yes. time. But being able to look back on that now and go, "Oh my God, I met some amazing people," yeah. and was too nervous to talk to all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I met David Tennant once. Yes, do that. Amazing. I may have told my David Tennant story many times. I may have said on the podcast. But, I, I you know. don't know if you've said it in the podcast or not. Because no. that, that was a peak Doctor Who level. Yeah, level that was peak. Billy Piper. Billy Piper, David Tennant. We we went up to. They were going to record a voiceover for the show, I suppose. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was I was in a lift with Billy Piper and David Tennant having a chat about writing. Yeah. yeah. And I think I was alright, but I was probably blushing incredibly and pretty gibberish but he was incredibly I think he gets a lot of nice yeah. and remembered my name on the way out as yeah. I left and loads of producers were going oh we'll do this we'll do this and I just went oh my job's done and then I'll leave the room yeah. he went Michelle good luck with the writing and everyone stopped and looked at me as I went okay thank you bye bye <laughs> and uh, I yeah I probably went down the corridor crying going yeah. doctor who knows who I am yes and so that was good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. What about yours, Andrew? Do you know what? I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I, 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 I can't. I, I can't top meeting uh, David Tennant. I might have met Patrick Tran at one point, but yes. I, I, I've never, because he died a couple of years later, um, and I've never been able to do the maths or the geography to work out if I actually did meet him. So that was in when you were little. Yeah, it was uh, well little enough about age thirteen, fourteen. And I thought you were going to say 34. <laughs> that was, that was a, while, a while, while It's been a while. That was still a while. It's just, I don't know, it's when you started saying 13. Because, uh, yeah, now that I'm in deep middle age, uh, the age of 34 seems such a. That is not why I'm men. It's true. It's true. Um, so, no, I, I haven't met the doctor. Um, in terms of uh, best jobs, I mean, I get to do a lot of youth theatre, and there's a lot mm. of magnificence in uh, the young people who are got some great ideas and are so kind to one another. Mm. There's that. Um, and yeah, you spoke very briefly about you know this in like, mm. doing the podcast or with the work we're doing, cast iron and stuff. Um, yeah. You've spoken today, you've spoken before about this fascination of creating stories out of everyday mundanity, of uh, the normality. Mm. That's clearly already a challenge because if it's that mundane, if it's that everyday, <laughs> if it's that not special, uh, how challenging is it to create an hour of theatre based on such shades of grey? Um. Gosh, well, I sound really arrogant if I say I don't think it's that difficult. Um, <laughs> I mean, of course, making anything is difficult. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to focus on characters who we often ignore, like the shop girl yeah. or uh, the waiter or the guy in the office or whatever it is. Um, so I think everyone has a story. However, 
non-dramatic you know most of our everyday lives you know every day isn't made up of um big life-changing joyous or tragic events um our, our lives are made up of quite banal tasks and routine and there's comfort in that too um but also everyone i think can relate to those stories there's also a sense, I guess, if you're, again, you work in a shop, not necessarily the shop that you yourself might be working in, but traditionally in a shop, it's one of the very few, and also, I guess, to a sense in the Navy, in a bizarre, connective way, there are very few jobs in life where you are quite genuinely labelled. You will have your name on your chest. You can ide- immediately be identified by somebody who might have a problem with you. Yeah. That's odd. Yeah, that is strange. I don't like that culture. I read a really good quote the other day. It was something like, um, you know when people always go, what's happened to good customer service in this country? You know, they say that in whatever country. Um, But someone was saying that we need to stop asking what's happened to good customer service and start asking what's happened to the way that we treat people in these roles, Mm. which is often to dismiss them, to ignore them, um to treat them like they're below you, that they're a lower status, to um, be very rude to them and kind of vent your day on them and pick a fight or, you know, whatever it is. We often don't treat, I think it's fair to say, the Western world, I don't, I feel, this is just me, um, don't always treat people in those jobs in the best way. Yeah, I mean, perhaps not so much uh, what happened to good customer service, but what happened to good customers. The exactly, whole idea yeah. of, you know, you can tell something a lot about how they treat the waiting staff. And I think the the most corrosive thing we've ever said about retail, really, uh, the most dangerous thing is the customer is always right, which is clearly a mm. lie. Quite often the customer is a complete... I, I'm not going to give Michelle an editing job, but, you know, the customer is quite often not a very nice person <laughs> and is quite actively wrong um, and I think we've either been in a situation or anecdotally heard of a situation where there'll be a, a customer kicking off reducing the um, the assistant to tears or whatever and the manager is finally brought in and then will back the customer up mm. whereas I think that I, I think I genuinely respect any shop or any sort of industry that sort of turn around to customer going no, you, you need to go now mm. It's that it's that sense of entitlement that I think a lot of people feel they have these days. That that being a customer entitles you to have whatever you feel you're entitled to, yeah. and that's what they mean. But you know, and people have taken and warped that idea of the customer is always right to be. You're a customer, therefore you can have whatever you want, and it's up to them to deliver that. But that's not that's not fair. What it what it is about is the customer you know, the customer shouldn't be exploited, granted, you shouldn't be exploiting the customer, you shouldn't be ripping off the customer, you shouldn't be providing Mm. them with a substandard um, service or product, but that doesn't mean that they should be able to get whatever outcome they want, irrespective of whether they've delivered the right product. So even if you get the right food, some people will still want a refund. So, Mm. but they shouldn't, you shouldn't get that. If you're getting the service and you're entering into a contract saying, I'm going into this place, and when I get X item, B item, I will pay X amount. That's mm. a, you're, you're agreeing to do that. Now, obviously, some places allow bartering, but we certainly should treat our staff with uh, with more respect. You know, yeah. There's um, there's often you know, 
cust- um, people who knock on the window of a shop that's just closed, the lights are off, <laughs> going, oh, I just want one thing. I only want one thing. I know exactly where it is. I want one thing. Well, if you know exactly where it is, you probably also know exactly when we closed. Please come back tomorrow. Um, yeah. And, I, and it's just, again, what I say treating our shops with respect, but also the shops themselves need to treat then we expect, you were thinking about the magazine thing earlier. Yeah. Uh, I remember I didn't ever work in Waterstones, but I used to sort of shop in Waterstones. Yeah. And I was very aware, I'm making an assumption here, uh, but I'm a, I'm a pretty confident assumption, in that throughout my childhood, my 20s, whenever you went to buy something at, at the till, the person at the till will be in the middle of reading a book. Mm. And you'd wait there patiently, for no, no longer than half a minute, mm. but they'd get to the end of their paragraph, they put it down, they'd serve you, everyone happy, it was all very lovely. And within about a day, suddenly, all books were put away. Mm. And you'd have the shop assistants sitting at the till. Yeah. Bolt up, right, not doing anything. And, and that was very sad to me. I want my people who are selling me books to know what books are and be excited by books. Yeah. yeah. And the whole idea, you know, I, I personally have no problem when I'm buying groceries and the two people on either side are chatting about whatever reality TV programme they're chatting across the tills I've never, I've never had to wait for them they, they've carried on serving me and I don't understand why why does a job, especially in a retail job why is it a, a part of the job requirement that you have to suffer it, why does it have to be well, a torture? Well you have to be silent and you also have to remember my absolute favourite is you must smile madly at all times because <laughs> if you don't then apparently you're miserable <laughs> um, so you must remember even when you're not speaking to anyone that you must be smiling Oh wow. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that um, that people who work in funeral directors don't have to have the same policy. You know, it's God, maybe I they don't. They do. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine if you walked in and the funeral director was just smiling happily at you, and you <laughs> like you a crazed face, yeah. <laughs> while discussing think... last night's episode of reality TV. <laughs> yeah. Anyone looks mad if they're smiling all the time. Yeah. Mm. Don't trust someone. I <laughs> like, no. And there are places that I worked that if there were no customers, you may have had this, if there are no customers, you must be cleaning yes. and you can never lean. Yeah. You're not allowed oh, to yeah. lean. You have to stand up all the time and you must never lean and always clean. Story a few years back about a company in America that um, in order to boost morale, it asked um, customers, uh, asked um, workers to be wearing a badge with a smiley face if they were happy to be working there that day. <laughs> and um, if um, you were not wearing that badge, you would be pulled into a meeting uh, to have a conversation as to why you were not feeling happy. And they were genuinely confused as to why morale was dropping. Uh, Chelsea, we're coming to the end of this hour um, and um, we have spoken very briefly about shop play, the idea of um, this play being um, this girl working in an environment that perhaps is now becoming not necessarily extinct, but certainly, you know, it's less a hub than it was mm. even 10 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. Um, so, without any preparation whatsoever, I haven't warned you about this, how are you going to save the high street? What, 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 what's <laughs> what, what's going to happen for the high street? How do, we, how do we gain it back? I've got no idea how you save the yeah. high street. <laughs> but I think it's... The, the thing that interests me most about it is... Um, is, is, is losing the community and, yeah. and losing the smaller traders um, and equally how um, maybe if you don't fit into that community how irritating it could be because yeah. um, maybe it's not 
people of your generation or people that you share something with. Um, so shop play kind of looks at that as well. Um, yeah, I don't know how you save the high street. I wish I did know. Michelle, how, 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 how are we going to save the high street? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> for me, living in a very Brighton bubble, It, I, I enjoy the... Um, the the little shops in the lanes yeah. and the kind of the places that seem independent and um, kind of cute. I like yeah. all I of that stuff. Ma- Is that yeah. that that must be good? I think the mad thing about I mean, in particular, this city, but I'm sure it's a, the same in London and and other places in England that, that to uh, be able to get a pl- um, a place, a small shop, say in the North Lanes, if you're in Brighton. The, like the the rent on that and what you need to front the, the tax the the, yeah. the the tax you have to pay yeah I mean it's not it's, it's not an artisan's game like no. it's I, uh, I think that was probably the answer that I was uh, expecting at least one of you to say is that the the rental prices on property on the high street is is we're certainly kind of productive to a small trader. I mean, yeah. um, huh. so we're now getting to the point where I mean I certainly have had the experience of being in a a shop, be that uh, a, a Costa or a, um, a department store that's repeated throughout the um, country. I've certainly been in the experience of, if I'm not in the town that I spend my life in, in Brighton, momentarily being confused when I walk out of that, because <laughs> people are like all over, it's, a, it's the same environment. Mm. And it's a pity that there is a bit of a carbon copy environment or that high street to this high street to that high street I mean obviously you know I think everyone is guilty of this that you I know that I I do it I go oh I won't go to the local corner shop I'll go to the whatever it is the big the big mini supermarket Mm. instead because it's cheaper and obviously it's cheaper because they can buy in much bigger quantity and the smaller shop that's independent can't do that um and that's like you know that's kind of the the point in a way that you know we all we're all everyone watches their cash whatever level they're at and um but and they can't help that a small independent corner shop can't help that so mm-hmm. no and they can't compete with that they no. just have to the only thing that the only their only one thing I think that those smaller shops have now is convenience really I mean mm-hmm. and that's why most of them are called convenience stores because it's just the, the location you know they hope to be near some houses that are closer to some houses than say a big shop is they hope that mm. most people maybe don't have cars and can't drive yeah. which obviously in Brighton is harder now because apartments and stuff and, and that's the <coughs> that they have and there's obviously a little community I mean we, we obviously go to the, the sort of local small sort of chain superstore or, or yeah. mini store down the road um, but at the same time you know there's you know, there is a convenience store going. We know, like, the people in there, and they're always like, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. yeah. You know, that we, we are, like it or, or not, we're part of that community to a, mm. to, a, to a degree. And there is something nice about that. You know, you kind of always feel that, you know, even though it is kind of, um, it's not necessarily the same as it, and it doesn't have the same role in society that perhaps it once did, it's nice to know that there's somewhere that you're a recognised face, that yeah. they know you, and if you ever kind of needed... You were in trouble or needed help. You could probably you what know, like the Sopranos? Out push. Yeah, you know, yeah. Have someone have someone 
kills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That kind you of never thing. know. There, uh, is a super, there is a supermarket, a uh, certain supermarket that, for its meat section, you know, the, the meat counter and stuff, it has you know the title for that section, and it's called the Family Butcher, mm-hmm. which is interesting because clearly it means you know meat for the family. You know, it, it's you know when you are busy shopping for your family for the week, here's the Family Butcher. But I find it quite an insidious phrase because yes. that's not what Family Butcher means. No, um, it was you know it, it's supposed to be a thing of that was the butcher that was on that bit of the high street mm. for the past 120 years. Mm. I thought you were thinking about cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> seemed as best a note as we could possibly hope for to end on. Um, we should very briefly uh, remind ourselves or indeed announce the dates for Shop Play, which is coming up at the Duke Box uh, at Chelsea. When, when are we up for uh, Shop Play? It is the 22nd and 23rd of November at 8 o'clock. Excellent, and that's uh, so the Duke Box, right in the sweet Duke Box, which is at the back of Southern Bell. Um, and so the tickets are available online. They so are Google right that. Now. That's right, um, website. So uh, we're very much looking forward to catching that in uh, the end of November and uh, looking forward to uh, whatever other projects, including Blue Sky Thinking. Yeah. I'm sure the next eight or nine ideas that you've already got forming yeah. uh, <laughs> before the next time we chat to you on the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. And edited by Michelle Donkey. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, cast underscore Iron Acts, on Facebook, Ironclad Cast Iron, all one word. Our website is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening. I might talk occasionally unless I've started to find my voice. Yes. Because what I tend to do with Andrew is I let him uh, take the risk for the first few times of any project that we do, like cast iron. I just go, yeah, you do that. And then if it works, I latch on and then slowly take it. I'm a cuckoo. I'm, yeah, I cuckoo everything. So I've slowly started to take you, over. Yeah, you steal people's babies. Yeah. yeah <laughs> throw them out the nest. Throw them out the nest. <laughs> And I uh, grow to a magnificent size before moving on. Wow.